this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've considered what Jesus has taught us about being healthy Christians, what it means to live godly lives. And previously in his teachings on his hillside that day, Jesus has talked about prayer. He warned his disciples about making a show of public prayer. Remember that? He gave them a model for prayer after that, which we now call the Lord's Prayer. And then after talking about treasures and worry and judging others, he comes back to the topic of prayer again. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 11. And we're going to focus on what Jesus has to say to us. So it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Amen. Amen. Now, it's easy to read verses 7 and 8 on their own and not take into account what Jesus was saying in the verses that are surrounding it, or even in the whole chapter or the whole Sermon on the Mount. But we can't do that. We can't just read those two verses and pull out of it what we want, not based on the, the surrounding context. Because when reading scripture, context matters. Too many times verses are taken out of context and used on their own to mean things that the writers never intended them to mean. Now, if you remember last week, we had one such verse, Matthew 7, 1. It was one of those verses where people will say, judge not lest you be judged. And then they do the mic drop and walk away, right? Judge not lest you be judged. And they do it one of two ways. They use that saying, uh, I could do whatever I want you can't judge me, right? Bible says judge not, so I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Or it's amazing how often this verse is used to say that we have no right to say anything, whether it's right or wrong, right? We just have no um, uh, right to do that. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online and listen to that message because it's such an important passage of scripture that is so often misunderstood. But this happens all the time. Someone has a problem with someone else, and so they take one phrase or one sentence or one passage, and they take that out of context, and they blow it out of proportion. We read into the word what we want it to mean, instead of looking at the heart of what is being said. At first glance, those first two verses seem like a universal guarantee that God will do anything we ask of him, right? Ask, seek, and knock, it's going to be given to you. It seems that way if we just read those two verses. Ask for it, and God will do it. Now, probably the most common phrase that expresses this sentiment today in our society is the name it, claim it people, right? You name it, and then you claim it, it's yours, right? All you have to do, that's what scripture says, name it and claim it. Now, there are a few different movements and teachers out there that tell people, based on this verse and a few others like them, that to pray in faith means naming it and claiming it. Name what it is, claim it, 
and believe that God will give it to you and he will give it to you whatever it is. Now, many will also look to James 5 as another strong example of naming it and claiming it. Let me read to you um, verses 16 through 18-ish. It says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, a lot of people will see those verses and say, man, we too should just pray knowing that uh, for um, you know, a, a, an absolute fact that God will do whatever we ask of him. If Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for, for three years and it didn't, then we can ask for whatever we want. And so we say, God, I'm, I'm going to go buy this house. I can't afford it. But I'm going to go buy this house because I am believing in faith that you will provide the funds for me. God, I know for a fact and I am believing that you want me to have this new job. So I'm going to quit my current job knowing and having faith that you will get me this new job. Now, if you feel that God is leading you to a new job, that's a different thing. Though I exercise a lot of caution when we talk about how God leads us with language like, God told me to do this. I just think we should exercise a lot of caution and remember that the main way God speaks to us is through his word. But this name it and claim it mentality is not God leading you to do something. If saying that, um, if you name it in faith and you claim it in faith, believing that it will happen, then God is bound by my word. Right? Right? People don't use that language, but that's exactly what they're saying. God will answer the prayer of faith in the positive, no matter what it is, a car, a house, children, a spouse, a job, whatever. And if you look at the origins of the name it and claim it mentality, it's linked with the prosperity gospel. God only wants health and wealth for you. You ask for it with enough faith and God will give it to you. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that this is a huge misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith is not presuming upon God's will. Faith is especially not thinking of God's will as subject to our will. Faith is believing that God will do what he has promised to do. So a prayer of faith is spoken, believing that God will do what he has promised to do, not what I want him to do. Even Elijah wasn't calling God to do what Elijah wanted, he was calling God to do what God himself had promised to do. In Deuteronomy 28, God promised that if the people didn't obey him, then drought and scorching heat would come upon the land. Well, they didn't obey him. And so Elijah prayed that God would do what he said he would do. So the amazing thing about Elijah wasn't that he used God to do Elijah's will, but he believed that God would do what he himself promised to do. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. This doesn't make God our own personal genie in a bottle. 
who will do whatever we wish. This makes clear that God will do what he has promised to do. The problem with this mentality of name it and claim it, or however we might express it, is that not only would that subjugate, subjugate God to our will, which just can't happen because then he would no longer be God, right? But also, that would weaken the promise that we see here in Matthew 7. This promise is bigger than that. This promise is gold. We just need to dig a little deeper to get to it. There's incredible encouragement and assurance found in this passage when we truly understand what Jesus is actually saying. So I want to share with you four truths from Jesus' words that are found here in this passage concerning asking for good things. The first truth is that we all desperately need the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm glad that I got some response from that. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now at first these uh, two verses seem kind of out of place. Jesus has just finished talking about not judging others. And he seems to take this sharp, right, sharp, 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 <laughs> not a sharp. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Sharp, right turn. Oh, that is hilarious. But we need to remember the, that context is important, right? Context is important. So we need to think back on everything that Jesus has been teaching, not just the verse before it but everything that's led up to this point. Now imagine Jesus on the hillside. There's lots of people sitting there. They've been listening all through chapter five, all through chapter six, now into chapter seven, and he has laid some heavy stuff on them, right? We need to think back on all the things that he's talked about. And if we think about that message, um, we can remember that he challenged these people and their minds like they had not been challenged ever. And everything that they knew or thought they knew, he was turning upside down. He starts off with talking about kingdom living and what that looks like. He talked about the Beatitudes in chapter 5. Then he goes on to say, you are the salt and light in the world. He goes on to teach about anger and lust and divorce about keeping our word, about loving our enemies, about giving to the needy, about prayer, and even last week, about not condemning people or looking down on them. Now think about all of that. And I don't know about you, but I can get a bit overwhelmed by the ways in which I don't measure up to that. He's saying this is how you should live, as children of God. And I look at my own life and I say, wow, I am falling short. I think of those people sitting on that mountainside. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I can feel in the room discomfort. I can feel uncertainty. I can feel anger. I can feel shame. 
because sometimes when I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit is moving and I become aware of what's happening in the room. Well, as Jesus was speaking, I think he was very aware that the people were becoming overwhelmed with all that he was saying to them. We all want to be more like Jesus. But sometimes it's overwhelming because Jesus' standard is remarkably high, and that's just looking at this sermon that he gave. Jesus comes to this point in the Sermon on the Mount where I think it's obvious that he knows that he's challenging his followers beyond their capacity. He knows it, which is why he decides to bring them some assurance and encouragement. He wants his listeners to know that God is with them. And he has provided for them all that they need to live according to his word. So he says to them, ask and it will be given to you. Seek what you need to live this way and you will find it. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks help finds it, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So where do we go to get help in pursuing righteousness? The Holy Spirit. Ultimately, the good thing that verse 11 says God wants to give us is the Holy Spirit. I'm not just saying that because it makes sense. I'm saying that because of the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, which specifies that this good thing that God has for us is the Holy Spirit. Luke 11.13 says, If then, if then who, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I'm not making it up. That's what it says. In Luke 11, the Holy Spirit specifically is the good gift that God wants to give to us. And why is that such a good gift? Well, because the Holy Spirit is the source of all blessings for Christians. The Holy Spirit is the source of our regeneration, our salvation, our godliness, our wisdom, our discernment, our obedience. Ask God for the Holy Spirit's help and he will give it to you. That's so much better than trying to make this verse mean that God is this genie in a bottle. I don't know about you, but I am glad that God doesn't say yes to everything that I have asked him for. In the same way, it's incredibly good that a parent doesn't always say yes to their child. That would be disastrous. I know that if I always said yes to Noah, he'd probably be dead by now. He's asked to do some crazy stuff, I'll tell you that. We need the constant help of the Holy Spirit, and I know we may not like that. I mean, part of our sinful nature is that we want to be independent. We don't want to have to need anyone or anything. But at the heart of the gospel is the truth that we are all in desperate need of a helper. And that helper is the Holy Spirit. Well, that brings us to the second truth in asking God for good things, and that is that God has all the supply that we could ever need. He never runs low. 
This goes right along with the first truth, but it's important that we note it separately. I want you to notice that these two verses don't say, ask and God will see what he can do. Seek and God will go looking with you. Knock and God will go through all his keys and see if he has the right key to open your door. No. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The point here is that there's no question that God has the supply that we could ever need. And again, as if we wouldn't get it the first time, Jesus repeats himself. And he goes the second time even stronger than the first. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. God has all the supply of what? In context with this Sermon on the Mount, he has all the supply of godliness, of righteousness, of wisdom that we could ever need. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his, his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Man, is there anything else in the world that we could desire more than this, than to become partakers of the divine nature? He supplied what we needed in Christ, and now he supplies what we need to live that godly life. Now, I know there are some people out there who would say that I'm ruining these two verses for them by limiting it to only mean that God will give us things that he considers to be good instead of anything that we want or desire. And my response to that is first and foremost, that's what it says. (laughs) I'm not making this up. Verse 11, how much more? With your father in heaven, will your father in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? Give good things, not just things, good things. Who determines what things are good? God does. So that's what I would say first. Second, I would say that I would be sinning by not telling you what it really means. I would be sinning by just telling you what you want to hear. Now, I'm not going to water down scripture or twist it to mean something that might make you feel better. Yes. We get to partake in the divine nature of God, and that is a good thing. So, God has everything we could ever need. The third truth in asking for good things is that God wants us to persist in our prayer. Continue in prayer. Persevere in your supplications. Keep on coming to God. Jesus said, keep asking. Keep on presenting your urgent requests and don't give up until you receive what you are asking for. Tim Keller, the recently retired pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, he's written many books, um, the 23rd Psalm, We did a whole series uh, years back, Uh, really great author, great preacher, 
mighty man of God um, tells a story in um, one of his books. And um, he says that he discovered prayer in the second half of his adult life. Now, this man's been a pastor for many, many years. And he said, the reason that I discovered prayer in the second half of my adult life is because I needed to. In the fall of 1999, he was teaching through the Psalms, and it became very clear to him that he was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. And then he came to the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, when the whole city sank into this kind of corporate clinical depression, um, even as it rallied. Keller says that the shadow was intensified as his wife Kathy struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease. And then he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Now, at one point during all of this, his wife Kathy urged him to do something with her that they had never been able to do up to that point regularly. She asked him to pray with her every night. Every single night without missing. Then she used an illustration that crystallized her feelings. And this is what she said. Imagine you are diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medication. A pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? Would you just, oh, I forgot. No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget, you would never miss it. Well, if we don't pray together to God, Kathy said, we're not going to make it because of all that we are facing right now. I'm certainly not going to make it. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. Do you know she's right? We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. We have to pray all the time to make it through these dangerous and challenging times. Do you want to receive what you need from God? Jesus said, keep on asking. But then Jesus goes on to say, keep seeking, keep looking. Keep pursuing what you lack. In June of 2017, a 53-year-old man named Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park when he disappeared. Park investigators found his body on June 9, 2017, where Murphy had fallen 500 feet from a steep slope and died. But he wasn't on just any hike. You see, he was looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels worth up to $2 million. It was buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire named Forrest Finn. Finn, who is an art dealer and millionaire in his late 80s, lives in San, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And in his self-published memoir, Fenn included a poem that supposedly led to the treasure he hid in the Rocky Mountains. And Murphy was the fourth man 
to die while searching for the chest, but he would not be the last. The treasure was finally discovered this past June, but not before five people lost their lives, ten people were seriously injured, and countless others spent all of their life savings looking for the treasure. People search for what they think will make them happy. But all too often, the search destroys them. Make sure that you are searching for the right things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seeking him leads to life, and all other pursuits only lead to death. Besides, when you find the Lord, you find the greatest treasure of all. So if you want to receive precious treasures from your generous Heavenly Father, keep on asking, keep on seeking. And finally, Jesus says, keep on knocking, keep on banging, keep on hitting that door of opportunity until it opens. In a preseason game against Washington in August of 2019, Cleveland Browns rookie receiver Damon Sheehy Giuseppe, that's a really hard name to say, uh, returned a punt 86 yards for a touchdown. Now, if you don't know about uh, football, that's really good, okay? That's really, really good. Not only were fans celebrating, but so were all his teammates because they knew Damon's backstory. Just four months prior, Damon was homeless and destitute. He was sleeping outside a gym in Miami where he had spent his last $200 on training. He had been traveling all over the country uh, going to tryouts. And he had spent all his money and was now uh, sleeping in the grass outside the gym. Now, in order to talk his way into getting a shot at the spring practice, he convinced officials that he was an acquaintance of Brown's vice president of player personnel, Alonzo Highsmith, which was absolutely not true. Yet, upon meeting him in person, Highsmith was impressed enough to offer Damon a chance to catch a few balls and run a 40-yard dash, which blew them away. That led to another practice and eventually a rookie contract. And afterward, Highsmith was clearly pleased with his decision. He said to be out of football as long as he has been out and still have that type of speed, that means he's fast. And now he's eating three square meals a day, sleeping in his own bed, and the sky is the limit. Damon said, I'm just blessed to be healthy and to be in a position that I am. I just try to stay in the moment and just think about what's to come next. I'm super proud to be able to take advantage of the moment like that. This is a man who had been knocking on doors. He had been pounding on doors for years. And finally, the door opened. He refused to give up despite being homeless. He kept on knocking. Now, I wouldn't recommend lying as a part of that process, but if such persistent pays in this world, think about how your persistent prayer can pay off with your generous, good, loving Heavenly Father. If you want to receive precious treasure from Him, 
Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. In other words, pray with persistence. The fourth truth in asking for the good things is that we need to remember God desires only good things for his children. He is not diabolical. <laughs> what am I going to give that one? When it comes to our prayers, sometimes God doesn't give us what we want because it isn't good for us. It isn't what's best for us. As parents, we take this approach, right? Children can ask and ask and ask and ask for junk food. And I'm sure they really believe that it's good for them and it certainly tastes good. But there is a certain point when we have to say no. Because we are aware of the consequences of eating too much junk food. And in a similar way, God also says no to us because he knows the consequences of what we are asking. And it's junk. Which means that prayer does come back to having a, a true sense of childlike trust that God, who is in heaven, knows exactly what is best for us, even when we can't see it ourselves. Look at verses 9 and 11 again, 9 through 11. It says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now Jesus, yet again, has, uh, as he's done so many times before in the Sermon on the Mount, gives us this helpful picture, this illustration in understanding what he's saying. No human father would give to his son who's asking for food something useless or something that could actually hurt him. The stone could actually look like a loaf of bread. Imagine if that child bites into it. And a snake could even be mistaken for a fish, especially the catfish in Galilee, which looked very similar to eels or snakes. So it seems like Jesus isn't just saying that no earthly father would give his son something random instead of what is needed. He's also saying no normal, loving human father would want to trick his son and potentially cause him harm. You can even take it a step further in thinking along the lines of unintentional pain caused by fathers. Earthly fathers can make mistakes. They can think that something is good for their children and later learn that it isn't good for them. But one of the most amazing things about God is his wisdom is perfect. God will never give you something that he thought would be good for you. And then realize, oh, that wasn't so good. You will never hear him say, oh, sorry, my bad. I thought that would have been a good thing. <laughs> That's not going to happen. If a flawed, fallen human father desires only good things for his children and not bad things, then how much more does our Heavenly Father, who is in heaven, who is not flawed in any way, how much more would he desire good things for his children? I like the way William Barclay put it in his commentary on Matthew. He said this, God will never refuse our prayers, and God will never mock our prayers. The Greeks had their stories about the gods who answered people's prayers, but the answer was an answer with a barb in it, a double-edged gift. One of the Greek myths described Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, falling in love with Tyth Tython 
uh, Tythonus. I think that's how you say it. A mortal youth. Zeus, the king of the gods, offered her any gift that she might choose for her mortal lover. Aurora very naturally chose that Tythonus might live forever. But she forgot to ask that Tythonus might remain forever young. And so Tythonus grew older and older and older and could never die, with the result that the gift became a curse. That's not the way our Heavenly Father works. He only gives good gifts. He is delighted to provide for us when we pray. And he never mocks our prayer. He will never give us anything that would become a curse. So, the four truths in asking God for good things. We need to remember that we all need the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that God has all the supply that we could ever need for living righteous lives. And God wants us to persist in prayer and ask for good things. I want to end today with story time. You guys up for a good story? Okay, <laughs> I'm glad you are. All right, so we're going to end with story. How many of you remember back in 2002? So go back in your uh, time machine to 2002. Um, do you remember the DC sniper or the Beltway sniper? Well, the DC sniper, um, these attacks, also known as the Beltway sniper attacks, were a series of coordinated shootings that occurred during the weeks of, um, of October, three weeks in October of 2002. Um, they happened in the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia. 10 people were killed and three other, 13 others were critically wounded in the Baltimore, Washington metropolitan area and along Interstate 95 in Virginia. Now the snipers were John Allen Muhammad, who was 41 at the time, and Lee Boyd Malvo, he was 17 when he was caught. And they traveled in a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice. Their crime spree, which began in February of 2002, included murders and robberies in the states of Alabama, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, and Washington. It resulted in seven deaths and seven wounded people in 10 months. And the snipers killed 17 people and wounded 10 others. Now, today I want to share with you the story of the man who called 911 and reported citing the car that the snipers were supposedly in. Now, I'm going to read to you the story as written by Ron Lance. Um, he wrote this. Um, for the devotional book, Guidepost. And so this is what he says. It's titled, Inspirational Prayer on I-70. Traffic on I-70 wasn't too bad. I should, I should have been enjoying myself that day last October, sitting up in the cab of my 18-wheeler, cruising through the Pennsylvania hills. 36 years as a trucker, and I still got a kick out of my rig. Bass Transportation bought this 600 horsepower tractor in 2000. I was the only one who drove it. And although I'd logged almost 400,000 miles, the cab was still so clean you could eat off the floor. If traffic held steady, I would make my usual run right on schedule, hauling a tanker of building 
compound from Ohio to Delaware, then deadheading back to my home in Ludlow, Kentucky. But I didn't make the run on time that day. For the same reason, I wasn't enjoying the trip. The Beltway Sniper. The words hammered in my head, eight dead and two wounded already, and it didn't look like there'd be an end to it. At any truck stop in the D.C. area, all we talked about was the white van the police were looking for. Schools were closed. People were too scared to leave their homes. It weighed on me that this guy was out there getting ready to kill again. I knew what it was like to lose someone you love. Five years earlier, my wife Ruth and I had lost our son, our only son, Ron, to multiple sclerosis. It was a pretty October day, just like this one, when, we, when he died. I knew when I got to the nursing home that something was up because there was a lot of hollering down the hall. What's going on, I asked. It's your son, Mr. Lance, a nurse said. I hurried to Ron's room. There was our boy sitting on the edge of his bed, hands raised over his head, praising the Lord. For more than a year, he hadn't been able to sit up on his own. I'm leaving here, Ron said. Someone's coming through that door tonight to take me home. Then he looked at me real hard. Dad, I don't want to be up in heaven waiting for you, and you don't make it. It wasn't the first time he'd brought up the subject. Ron was a real committed Christian. My parents raised me in the faith, but somehow I had drifted away. I want you to go over to my church right now, Ron went on. Find my pastor and give your life to the Lord. Well, that is exactly what I did. Afterward, I went back to the nursing home and I told Ron, I'm glad I had the chance because somebody did come for my boy that night to take him home. My life turned around. I got active in the church. I headed the men's fellowship. I led retreats was on the Sunday school board. I'd never start a run without kneeling by my bed at the rear of the cab and asking God to watch over Ruth, my wife. After the sniper shot his first victims, I'd been praying about that too, that someone would stop this killing spree. It had gone on for 12 days already. Around 7 p.m. when I was about an hour and a half out of Washington, Delaware, the usual report came on the radio. Nothing new on the sniper. All they knew was that a white van might be involved. I got to thinking about what I'd learned at church, how a bunch of people praying together can be more powerful than a person praying alone. What if I got on my CB, see if a few drivers want to pull off the road with me and pray about this? I pressed the button on my microphone and said that if anyone wanted to pray about the sniper, he could meet me in half an hour at the eastbound 66-mile marker rest area. A trucker answered right away, then another, and another. They'd be there. I hadn't gone five miles before a line of trucks formed, some coming up from behind, others up ahead slowing down to join us. The line stretched for miles. It was getting dark when we pulled into the rest area. There must have been 50 rigs there. We all got out of our cabs and stood in a circle, holding hands, 60 or 70 of us, including some wives and children. 
Let's pray, I said. Anyone who feels like it can start. Well, the first one to speak up was a kid maybe 10 years old, standing just to my left. The boy bowed his head and said, Our Father, who art in heaven. We went around the circle, some folks using their own words, others using phrases from the Lord's Prayer. It seemed to me there was a special meaning where it says, Deliver us from the evil one. The last person finished. We prayed for 59 minutes. All those truckers adding an hour to their busy schedules. Ten days later, October 23rd, I was making my Ohio to Delaware run again. There had been another killing, and the sniper was no, no nearer to being caught. Right from the start, there was something different about my trip. In the first place, it was a Wednesday. I normally made my runs Tuesdays and Thursdays, but there was a delay at the loading dock, so I told my pastor I'd have to miss our Wednesday night prayer meeting. We'll be praying for you, said the pastor. The second thing that happened, I, I, stopped, I, I was stopped by the cops. Once was rare for me, but this trip I was pulled over three times. Not for very long, they were just checking papers, but it made me, get me late getting into Washington. The next strange thing that happened, instead of catching a few hours sleep, I headed back west as soon as my cargo was offloaded around 11 p.m. That wasn't like me at all. I knew too many sad stories when a driver didn't get enough sleep. It was like I had an appointment though, like I couldn't sleep even if I tried. At midnight, the Trucking Bozo Show came on the air. A, mu a music and call-in program a lot of truckers listened to. There was news in the sniper case. There were two snipers, not one. And police now believe the guys were driving a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice with New Jersey plates, license number NDA21Z. Not the white van we had all been looking for. I wrote down the tag number. Just before 1 a.m., I reached the rest stop at the 30-mile marker near Marysville, Maryland, only a few miles from where so many of us had made a circle and prayed. Westbound on I-70, this was the only rest area between Baltimore and Breezewood with a men's room, and I wasn't going to pass that by. And here was the last weird thing about that trip. The truck aisles were full. I'd never seen so many rigs at that stop. Drivers sleeping. Only thing I could do was swing around to the car section. I wouldn't be long. Climbing down from my cab, I noticed a car in the no parking zone. The light over the men's room door was shining right on it, a blue Chevrolet Caprice. There must be hundreds of blue Caprices out there. I looked closer. Two men, one slumped over the wheel asleep. Beyond the men's room was a row of bushes. So I crept behind them and squinted to make out the license number. Jersey plates, N, D, A, 2, 1, Z. Quiet as I could, I climbed back in my rig. Better not use the CB in case the guys have one. I punched 911 on my cell phone. I'm at the Marysville rest stop. There's a blue Chevrolet Caprice here, Jersey license, NDA, 2, 1, Z. The operator asked me to hold. In a minute, she came back with instructions. Wait there. 
Don't let them see you. Block the exit with your truck if you can. If an 18-wheeler can tiptoe, that's what mine did. I blocked as much of the exit ramp as I could, but there was still room for a car to get by. Five minutes passed. Only one other driver was ready to roll. Soon as I told him what was happening, he pulled his rig alongside mine, sealing off the exit. I sat in my cab looking out the side mirrors at that blue caprice, expecting a shootout, thinking I ought to be scared and wondering why I wasn't. Five more minutes passed. I was afraid another truck or a car would drive up and honk for us to move it. Waking the suspects, but no one stirred. The cops slid up so quiet, I didn't know they were there until suddenly it was like the 4th of July with flash grenades lighting up the night to stun the two men. FBI agents, state troopers, officers from the sheriff's department swarmed the rest stop. Searchlights, breaking glass, shouts, the thump of helicopters, SWAT teams, and night vision goggles. Running low, crouching, guns drawn. Next thing I knew, the two men were being led away. The police took down the names and addresses of everyone who had been at the rest area. It was two and a half hours before we were free to go. And since I'd been blocking the exit, I was the first one out. Five miles down the road, I started shaking so bad I could hardly hold the wheel. Then I got to thinking about all the unusual things that had happened for me to be at that place at that time and about my friends at church praying for me that same evening. And I couldn't help thinking about my son, Ron, who had led me to that church. I looked in my rearview mirror at the line of trucks behind me and remembered leading another line of semis 10 days earlier. I remembered the circle of truckers and their families holding hands, voices joined together to pray, deliver us from evil. That is the power of prayer. God calls us to be persistent in our prayers. And when we are, miracles happen. God is at work in the world. And when we pray, we become a part of that. How exciting is that? May the peace of the Lord be with you. And also with you. Thank you. Love one another. Very good. Very good.